Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is Neil Fox. How are you doing, Neil? I'm tired. I've been out two nights in a row, which at my age is not advisable. Uh, I was out at the cinema on Tuesday. Yeah, I was out at the cinema on Tuesday watching Top Gun for this episode. So that was work, Uh, which we'll talk about later. And um, (laughs) then last night was pure pleasure because Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds played the Eden Project uh, near me. Yeah, I saw your uh, um, highlights on uh, Instagram uh, about that. Yeah, how how is dear dear old Noel? Is he still knocking out the grizzled rocker notes, you know, with a plum, or is there is there anything sort of new there? Would you say a lot of it's new, which obviously kind of disappoints a lot of people. He's played, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He sort of plays about forty five to fifty minutes of the the stuff he's done since Oasis split up. So sort of three albums and some EPs, and a lot of it. I mean, I love that stuff. It's it is him pushing out of the the kind of the beer rock into interesting sonic territory. Interesting for Noel Gallagher, you know, like a lot of people say, oh, it's, you know, but he, mm. I, I find it quite interesting and he's he's actually been quite adventurous with a lot of stuff and he plays some of that stuff, which is, I think is fab. I mean, I really like it. And it's some of my favourite producers have worked with him and on remixes and producing some of the albums. It's really, really interesting, but no one's there for that, you know. So he does that and then he sort of says, I bet when you saw the price of this ticket because it's it's a they're quite expensive Eden sessions you were thinking you know and you were thinking wow that's that's quite a lot and then you've got here and you're like this is a waste of money he said well this is what the money's for and then he just like then he goes into like kind of like an oasis greatest hit set and it's just it's magical you know like he plays most of the a lot of stuff that he sang and a couple of stuff he doesn't but yeah and i was with a friend who's not a huge oasis fan and hadn't you know he hadn't seen he'd never seen him before um and he was like this is great and i was like yeah it's, it is bloody great what i really like about watching noel gallagher now is that he's he seems happy you know like he's, he's very content with the fact that he's in his 50s and that people have come for five songs but he's got a band that he enjoys playing with and the music he's happy playing that music and he's like you know i'm gonna do what i want but he kind of honors the he honors the fan base at the end with the hits and it's it just yeah it was it was brilliant and it's such an amazing venue like to see a, a band and the weather was glorious it was i thought it was a great night yeah 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 yeah. what about you you were at the tennis this week when oh. i was indeed you see this is the big difference between you and me i mean i know you're not a, you know you're not an anti-sports not at all no but yeah guy i know there's a lot of kind of people you know there's a lot of people who sort of say art and sports is diametrically opposed um and yeah i was <laughs> i was a kind of you know the the what a lot might consider the sort of, you know, an upper class venue de jour of Queen's Club, which I'd never actually been before. I've been to Eastbourne um, and Wimbledon a few years ago, and I've been regularly to the O2, which is much more of a sort of, you know, uh, corporate entertainment package type thing with a bit of tennis in the middle, you know, some very good tennis in the middle. But then Queen's is, uh, I mean, it's like 40 minutes away from where I live. And yeah, we sort of rocked up there and you can see that there is a, um, you know, there's a tennis club underneath all of this purpose-built stadium. I mean, the centre court is literally just like an old building and then a massive purpose-built sort of temporary stadium around it. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, not ex- not cheap. So it's, you know, it's a certain clientele and tennis as a sport is a certain clientele as well. It was, I was really kind of hoping that we might see Alcaraz and Murray on Monday because it was the first day so there's a chance of seeing sort of the top seeds will be scheduled on the first day but then Alcaraz pulled out and Murray pulled out 
of the second day because they were both injured from previous tournaments. But, you know, it was great because there's four matches and um, a lot of Brits were involved. Um, and Dimitrov, who's a, a kind of very nice player to watch. And, and we just had great seats behind just behind the court rather than the side. So we weren't sort of going backward and forward like that. You always got to be behind if you go watch tennis because you get that TV layout. And it was just, what was amazing about it was it was a massive stadium. You know, it's not not sort of Wimbledon centre court size, but we were close enough where we could hear them talking to the coaches and you could actually hear the the sound of the ball on the grass and yeah, just you know, if you're into it, if you're into a spot, and you you get the sense of the power and the ability, and it it's not so much the the strength of the shots, although when they want to, they can really hammer it. But a lot of the time, they're being very you know careful about where they're putting the ball. But it's just the physicality, the ability to get into the position at the right time, and like you think, oh, that's a winner, and they get to the other side and get it back in. You're like, oh my god, my forty eight year old bones would never have got to that. And yeah, it's just, you know, it was very corporate. It's very expensive, very privileged to go. And as a sport, you know, tennis, golf, they, they're always the ones that are labelled as being sort of upper-class sports. And they are in terms of the history of sort of uh, players who've broken through tend to be people who have had money. And that was a problem when I was a kid and I played to a decent level. We just didn't have the money to go to tournaments and stuff like that. But I still like watching it a lot. I mean, it's the one sport that I... I mean, I don't don't watch golf very much or football or any other sport, really, apart from tennis. And I enjoy the sort of, you know, the the development of the game in terms of cycles of players and who's at the top and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was my uh, bit of entertainment. Great. Well, I guess we might talk about that kind of cycling of talent um, from one generation to the next when we talk about... Indeed. We talk about one of the movies that we... uh, sort of going to chat about on this episode which is an episode where we are yeah sort of talking about some recent sort of 2022 releases some brand new and and some from sort of a couple of months ago and yeah in an episode where it's just us sort of chatting about movies but you put out to the patreon uh, subscribers if there, anyone wanted us to cover anything specific and we got a lovely email back didn't we yeah um from ian mcpherson so thank you ian for responding to that and he asked a, a couple of questions actually you know nice lengthy email giving all the all the details about his recent film going experiences he's been to to a, a bfi season on new french extremity um i think it was part of a short course there and had had gone to to that course i think probably being skeptical or or maybe just sort of curious about extremity curious if that's a thing <laughs> um it is now and uh you know talked about some of the recent films that we actually covered a little bit on the body horror chat that we had uh the dick or now films particularly titane and, and raw um but also sort of mentioned um gaspar noe and catherine brilliat and, and dumont as sort of what I would call kind of more mainstream French extremism, but but then sort of asked the questions about their their sort of sense of strangeness, their avoidance of normal cinem- cinematic language and genres, as he puts it. I mean, I wouldn't say that they avoid them. I think they often use them as a starting point and then develop off into weird, unexpected areas. So there is a sort of lingua franca of of genre embedded into into these 
uh, movies. But then he says something interesting. I'll just quote this bit where he says, arguably some of them suggest a pre-modern sensibility, whether medieval or of Greek tragedy, in their attitude to violence and the body, but aligned with suggestions about what kind of world we are creating, inhabiting now. It's dislocated and fractured narrative of progress and stability under greater strain than ever, which is, I think is a an interesting observation in terms of what these filmmakers are trying to do in terms of the experiential nature of, of the film and films and maybe starting off within generic lines but then taking them outside and not conforming to sort of mainstream or art house boundaries maybe in that sense mm. yeah very interesting and they've gone through that kind of cycle of initial repulsion and sort of dismissal that they're just yeah sort of bathing in the sort of the sensationalism of of of, of the the horror to sort of to to be able to be looked back upon by that season and just in more general as, as a as a kind of really fascinating body of work, particularly when you look at that early twentieth early twenty first century period that a lot of these films sort of emerge in, you know, that sort of turn of the turn of the millennium period of which when, yeah, looking back from twenty years was a, a kind of really tumultuous period, you know, that has kind of set in motion where we are now for for sure. And I think a lot of the films were responding to that, but I think often they're responding to it in a very kind of primal and visceral cinematic way, which I think has taken a while for some people to to kind of to to, to assign a kind of meaning to other than just are oh, they just exploitative or, or sort of sensationalist. Yeah, and I think that there are filmmakers probably in the last sort of 5 or 6 years who have taken the that French extremist sort of um modus operandi for want of a better word and moved it forward more into a kind of ironic almost post postmodern approach where i mean i'm talking of like filmmakers like like bertram bonello and nocturama and bertram mandico who did a film called wild boys which is really weird and then uh, knife and heart by jan gonzalez from 2019 and then an interesting film i saw on movie by a, a filmmaking duo called Catherine Podgy and Jonathan Vanell called Jessica Forever, which is a sort of weird sci-fi satirical critique of capitalism, but with this very sort of video game sheen to it. And all of them use the the aesthetics in a very highly stylized, playful kind of way. But but are high, but are not like like they're not postmodern pastiches in that kind of flat sense. There's really a, a, a kind of politics to that, and I, and I think that those last two filmmakers, in fact, I think all of these filmmakers are sort of connected to the Flame Manifesto, which is something that I've I've talked about with with students that I've taught in the past in terms of having a having a filmmaking sensibility and you can go and, and, and read that this very abstract manifesto where they talk about a cinema that enjoys and consumes itself without counting you know that this sort of rejection of of values that come through you know the traditional cinematic means whether it's awards or commercial success these words activate our common desire to make films to dream them to think them to desire them to reveal them is one of the the sort of taglines so a really sort of interesting approach I think and, and rejection of what how how filmmaking and cinema is grounded within these boundaries of what expectations should be you know depending on you know whether you're talking about commercial cinema or or a, a sort of more art house sensibility yeah i think and they sort of stand as a almost like a bulwark against what's coming in many ways you know this a lot of the films you know in that kind of really unhelpful but 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 kind of common discussion of like would they be what would happen if they were made now kind of thing they're kind of almost preempting a kind of a really conservative 
reaction to to what cinema should be and is you know in terms of like what we're expecting to see and what type of characters are are kind of put put through what things which are they do feel weirdly radical in many ways because they are kind of pushing at the boundaries of 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 the cinematic in terms of like what what is acceptable which is kind of feels quite still cause feels feels quite refreshing now you know i was thinking when this question came in of a film that i really like called switchblade romance by alexandra aha which is kind of an early one you know i think it's also called high tension and i just remember the visceral experience of seeing it in the cinema and just being absolutely physically engaged you know completely on edge tense like my, all my muscles were tense and it was an exhausting experience you know and it was it was built that way it was built to be shocking you know in terms of the physical experience that the the cinema goes go through um and it had a you know has a very sort of infamous sort of twist ending which now people sort of look back on and go oh you know but but at the time in terms of like you were saying earlier in terms of the way it is engaged with genre history felt yeah kind of mind-blowing um and deeply uncomfortable you know it was it felt like this was a decision to make you really feel quite sick you know but 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 to 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 carry to carry into the finale the the shock and and try and process it as it as it's unfolding i think it's a masterful piece of work but it's it's really raw you know it it feels really really kind of yeah high tension i think is a great name for it it's everything's up to 11 to kind of to make you feel it's not you know it's there's a little bit of thinking but mostly it's about feeling and yeah ian mentioned trouble every day which we talked about on the claire denis you know which is a film about yeah sort of tactility and sensuality and it's it's designed to make you feel and not necessarily be distanced and objective and think about it. it it draws you into that feeling and that's a space that cinema is really good at and is sort of built for in many ways but is increasingly less used in that in that way yeah, that's really interesting, and and I, th- I think when it whenever a label gets attached to a group of films, you know, new French extremity, then suddenly, v- very quickly, that becomes a sort of either a, a confining thing, you know what I mean, a sort of label that that says, oh, th- th- this is within this boundaries, so therefore we're gonna we're gonna limit how we think about those kinds of films, or or indeed a stick to beat it with. It's like, oh, it's just doing the thing that that these films these films do, but. Yeah, they're always interesting stuff. I think I think still coming out now, and maybe even related more to relevant issues, you know, post sort of the turn of the century. Let's let's say that maybe was the beginning driving force for that kind of that kind of turn. And then on the an interesting question, Ian, just very quickly on on Bresson, which is a sort of perennial question, I think, for for any movie that that goes back probably beyond the nineties the, these days. When he asks, you know. Um, well, how do we consider, you know, filmmakers like Bresson today, particularly with with younger audiences? And he says, "I'm baffled as to what a, a young film enthusiast might think of a Bresson film now, and how would they view them? Are they still cinematic milestones, or fading rapidly into a vanished era of culture?" I mean, I just think that, I mean, again, maybe this is overly cynical, but you know, you put a room full of a uh, hundred students in front of pickpocket. The, the the number of them who would be able to engage with it i'm not just which is nothing against individuals and their capacity to to consume it's that, that sense of what have you been trained to understand as what cinema is isn't it you know it'd be very it'd be very narrow and indeed i think that probably that, that that's something that that was a process that we both went through when we went to film university film you know film school actually sort of being open to 
to rewiring our sense of what it is that we're watching and how to place that into a into a context you know yeah yeah this was a this is a really interesting question i think yeah in terms of what we do as as lecturers for sure um earlier this week i had the the annual mandatory training day where you know sort of with the staff are gathered together and it was actually the best one I've been to. It was, it was sensible and sensitive in terms of like how it was framed, and a lot, but a lot of it was about teaching and scholarship and how to stay on top of what's going on in your field, why it's important to be engaged with your field, and kind of like things like research-informed teaching. It was, it was an interesting day, and the you know it, this sort of time of year always makes me think about what am I doing in terms of in terms of that that thing there of like you know at the end of an academic year, I'm assuming that everyone. No one in my class wants to learn anything about cinema, you know. But that's that's just not a way to go into the next year. So it's kind of about finding that, refinding that curiosity and trying to find ways of of bringing students into that world. Because I I think Bresson is a vital filmmaker. You know, I also think what's interesting about Bresson in terms of teaching independent filmmaking is this is one of the most powerful filmmakers who ever lived, whose mantra was simplicity, and with students coming in with this, their ideas of the maximal but the reality of the the very tiny like here's a great filmmaker whose legacy is kind of you know, a huge part of cinematic aesthetics who worked very simply uh, both in terms of like production but also of the idea of what, what what a film should look like and be I think what I find really important is trying to get students to access that and say look this is not just a black and white film from the 60s that I think is cool it's actually a mode of working that you could really learn from in terms of your work um, and you can do this right now that's the thing about someone like Bresson is like you could do that you could you could do this you could investigate this and this is also cinema it's not you know and it's about trying to tap into that curiosity the other thing I'll say as well is like we need filmmakers to to be open about the their influences and we need uh, younger audiences to be curious about those things you know so good old Jenks even the, the few times he's talked about Ennis Main already uh, Mark Jenkin has talked about Bresson and I know when I was and this is you know, to go back to Oasis I was talking about this last night you know someone I really like tells me about things that they're interested in or influences I go and dig that out I'm like oh okay that's I've not heard that name that sounds interesting I'll, I'll and I'll try and see how how it fits in that seems to be lost I don't seem to see that as much, but I think, and I think that that part of that is that it's harder to find that stuff, or it's easier to find that stuff. So it's like, well, I'll, I'll get back to that, you know. Whereas when I was getting stuff, I'd have to go to a record shop or I'd have to go to a, a video library and see if they had it, you know. Like, it, and I don't mean that in a kind of oh, it was, but but there, there was there was a quest element to it which is not there now. So I think that they get this information, and naturally it just sort of sits there. There's no process of like, well, I'm, I'm going to follow this through. And we need that following through in order for Bresson to remain. And I don't, I think that we do have to have conversations and we do have them about, you know, who gets remembered and why. But it seems, and I think a BFI season is a great way of kind of just keeping people engaged. And, and when they can start to go out and see modern films that actually are engaged with those kind of Bressonian ideas, then hopefully it will, yeah, we'll still be able to say that in 20, 30 years time. Yeah, I mean, I think you've touched on something that goes sort of beyond just just Bresson generally there, which is one of the difficulties of teaching now is 
that you that there is no you can't automatically expect that that move from here I'm going to show you this and I'm going to give you this to read to accompany it they they you know that the, the screening and the reading was a sort of foundation of um, university learning in one sense so you can then you talk about that in the seminar seminar and you kind of assume that a student when then if they were interested in that particular area would go off and study and I think that one of the one of the problems is is the kind of filmmaking we get today announces its links all the time on the surface so therefore there isn't a sort of there's almost kind of an implied requirement on the viewer then to say okay well if this looks a bit like this if this is referencing this then I want to see that literally in front of my eyes (laughs) you know what I mean all the time and this is that you know that that sense of you, you can't see something you know, wholly enclosed in and of itself, or in this filmmaking culture where there is this massive network, and that's got its that's got its positives, but it also perhaps flattens out that level of quest that you've called it. You know, you call it curiosity, you call it whatever you whatever you want, but that sense of oh, here's something interesting, and clearly it comes from somewhere, so I have to do some work to go and find that. Whereas that I don't think that occurs anymore in the same way. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, it's like the idea of, you know, when you're dealing with somebody like Bresson or you're dealing with somebody that you think is important as a as a lecturer and you're putting it in front of the students, you, you have to be completely explicit and applied about why this matters. So I, explicit in the sense of this is why, this, this is who Bresson influenced. You know, you can show pickpocket and say, well, this is Scorsese. But then also you've got to kind of say, why does it still, still matter and be absolutely on the surface about that that's and that's a kind of I'm not saying that's a bad thing that's just a reformulation of teaching practice that I think has occurred over the last 10-15 years for sure yeah absolutely and I, th- I think it's yeah I don't see any other way of of keeping that that spirit alive without that reformulation I think that's really well put because yeah that's exactly what we've gone through you know how do we how do we how do we get one or two students in the class interested in in the in this filmmaker you know and you're right there about that kind of that that idea of referencing and linking is built into everything but it is a it links and references itself you know so it's not reaching out beyond that you know and i remember when was it captain america the winter soldier and came out and some people i won't call them critics necessarily but sort of said oh this is like a 70s paranoid american conspiracy thriller like the parallax viewers and i was like oh okay and then i watch it i'm like no it's not you know why because it's like it's it's set in an office and someone's paranoid like that's that's you know but it you know so that's just a monday for me exactly yeah welcome to our world um you know so it's like well actually you know yeah anyway that was a bit of a digression but but I, i do feel like that there's a there's a responsibility to to actually kind of engage with this stuff if, if it's doing anything or, or and not just be like well it's 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 like this or it's and it's like it's that, that that's not really what we're talking about and i think that bresson is a filmmaker like you mentioned scorsese there who's he's had a huge influence and in ways that are not not easily you know you couldn't say well i look at this and it looks like that it's like well that's not really what we're talking about when we talk about influence um it's a kind of it's a mode it's a feeling and it's lots of things like that that people are trying to engage with so yeah um the other option as well which i think we are going to talk about now is um that you you reference something from your own cinematic past (laughs) by including it in the just include it don't even no recreation just just actually reference the clip that you're referencing in the with a song or something (laughs) 
I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you're obviously talking about uh, you're obviously talking about Top Gun there. But just just before we get to that, um, I just wanted to say that we we also have a new Patreon. So thanks to Ian for a start for for those interesting questions. Yeah, really great, Ian. Thanks. Um, but also welcome to Joe Oborn, who um, has joined us at the four pound level. So he will be getting a uh, tote bag that will be winging its way to you and uh, thanks very much for the support and also just quickly to say that our last episode of the season is the next one which is actually going to be a live recording in London so uh, we've partnered up with the Garden Cinema and we're hoping that that's going to be more of an ongoing thing when it comes to next season but we're having our first live screening there and we are going to show Cape Fear the original 1962 I haven't got it written down in front of me, I think. But uh, Robert Mitchum starring with Gregory Peck in the film. I, I think a lot of people sort of know the the, the Robert De Niro, Nick Nolte version. Um, but yeah, we're going back to the original film noir and they're having a film noir season at the at the Garden. So that's in Covent Garden in, in London. It's on the 5th of July and we'll start about quarter to six. So we're going to go back to our original format of... A little intro, we'll watch the film and then do Q&A afterwards. Unfortunately, Neil can't make it, but I'm hoping to get, well, I will be getting a, a guest host to help me present that. Yeah, sorry to not make that because it is exciting that we're we're back doing these kinds of episodes and a huge thank you to, to George at the Garden Cinema for reaching out and inviting us to be involved. It's Yeah, it's really exciting. And it's nice to be doing that kind of movie. That's the kind of movie we, it's our sweet spot in, uh, in terms of screenings. So yeah, it's uh, it'd be great to talk about that. Indeed. A screeching segue then from Bresson all the way to uh, Top Gun Maverick. So yeah, Neil, I mean, obviously we, we talked about talking about this. I mean, I wrote quite a, a lengthy piece in the newsletter about more about Tom Cruise as a star, but then obviously I'd seen Top Gun Maverick and you said you're going to see it. So, I, and, and interestingly, I think in the last week, I've seen a lot of, how shall I put this, you know, critics let's say in the in the sort of inclusive you know or broad term you know really going to town back on the old you know this is militarist propaganda which is difficult to argue against but also part of that i think there's an element of that that i really don't like the overt dismissal of the film as just that and then what the implications of the critics saying that for the people who are watching it and liking it which i'll come to at the end but what did you make of uh, top gun maverick strange experience um you know sort of going in thinking a lot about it and expecting things like it to be kind of you know overtly propagandistic which it's kind of built into it but I, I didn't think I, th- I thought it was nowhere near as propagandistic as the the first one. And I think a lot of that is because of Cruz, you know, because he kind of takes the film and makes it about him. It's just it's about him. It's not about being a pilot. It's about yeah, being yeah, Tom yeah. Cruise, you know, um, look at me. Look at me running through a forest. <laughs> I can still run really fast through a forest like, you know, and it's it's kind of the dialogue is geared towards telling him he's old and he can't do this stuff and then he's like I'll show you and he you know that, that's his that's his career now you know we we know this and and also I thought it was interesting that the target felt a lot more tangible than it did in the first one I still I can't you know it's very hard to remember who they're actually going out against at the end of the, the first one it's just that it's, it's the ruskies at the yeah. end of the first one isn't you know, it definitely you know the yeah. migs and all that but but here it's very nondescript yeah. and they've, it's very you know, sp- sp- blackly clothed pilots. Yeah, it's like this is yeah. the specific target and this is the pram- but it's like they didn't it they weren't it wasn't like they're an enemy and like they're bad they weren't held up in any kind of cartoonish way it was just like this is the the goal of the mission which i thought was quite interesting you know um and i was kind of 
liked it. Um, I really, I enjoyed it, you know, and I think I enjoyed it a lot because I didn't, I don't have any really emotional attachment to the first one. You know, I saw the first one much later than would have been impressionable. Um, so I just, I thought it was, I don't think it's a necessarily a great movie, but I think it's got a lot of, particularly in the, the action sequences, a lot, of, you know, a lot of stuff. So this one, when they kind of called back, which they did repeatedly, um, it was like, I was like, oh, yeah, it just sort of reminded me <laughs> rather than, you know, and I know a lot, a lot of real fans have kind of problems with how much it does that, you know, like that it's, but it's the, for me, it was just like re- watching The Force Awakens and, you know, like yeah, that, that's, 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 that's what the, we do now. Yeah. It's the same film. We're going to, we're going to remake the film. We're going to, with the same characters doing the same things at the same moments. And we, oh, but we're also going to include clips from, the original and that, that's it now that's that's it's so i was thinking about is it it didn't feel like a sequel and it didn't feel like a reboot it's kind of like a remake but it kind of sits in i think a re- this new weird space of nostalgic you know remaking where it's it literally takes all those beats the music the colors the font just it replaces actors who are a bit old with younger actors to say ex- pretty much the same lines the first minute or so you you might have thought you were back in 1986 in some time machine it was exactly the same as the original you know the the opening yeah. se- musical sequence and what have you yeah and the don simpson produced it yeah, you know, yeah because yeah. obviously That's... he produced the first one so yeah. you know it's like hasn't he been dead for like you know i know he was a powerful producer <laughs> no but yes, i'll say i mean it's, it's brook crime is still around but but don yeah. simpson's passed away so it's yeah. really weird but they labeled it this kind of like to don simpson jerry brookheimer production like it, yeah it was it was like this is yeah. not we're taking you back you know and weirdly tom cruise still looks like like <laughs> he has a very age but you know which is kind of it's kind of weird in itself so yeah it, I, I i kind of in, i enjoyed it as a film and the technical work and i was so glad i'd seen it in the cinema in that sense was it was astonishing yeah yeah yeah, like just absolutely astonishing and i was like that's enough you know and i don't need it to be anything else i'm not interested in it other than this kind of weird tom cruise's who's he fighting against in this like see is he fighting against cgi (laughs) it feels like he's just now fighting against this concept (laughs) of cgi um yeah 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 yeah. but but yeah but but the sequences in the the the, the planes were just like yeah amazing amazing stuff i mean exactly that and what what's really strange about this sort of you know this this accusation or this critique of you know this is just ideological propaganda rah rah america you know military industrial complex a, a recruiting vehicle for you know y- young men who you know and look that's an in, in some ways that's an interesting point how many or how how if you're a 13 14 year old kid today and you watch this, does this make you think, yeah, that's cool. That's what I want to do, right? In in a in a very causal way, which is the implication when people are saying, you know, that. But then also, I really find it problematic that, that if you're a critic and you say this is a this is an awful ideological movie because it sells this propaganda, and not really realizing that 99% of the audience kind of knows that but can hold that in their head at the same point of saying, oh yeah, this is just hilariously good fun. You know, we get the Tom Cruise stuff, as you said, and then we get the action sequences or walk out and say, oh yeah, I had had a really exhilarating couple of hours, but I don't, you know, I don't support the war. I don't support American military, you know, power building or anything like that. But I can kind of watch that on that, on that kind of level. Because, you know, it's like, 
This is the one of the problems with ideological criticism, isn't it? It's kind of like you're saying that. Are you saying that these these movies shouldn't be made? Are you saying that the cinema in 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 its mainstream sense? Because all movie if all movies work on that level on in some regard, you know, you could sort of talk about. I mean, I haven't seen the Northman, but you know, sh- should we should we not be making that because it. It glorifies kind of crusading rape and pillage or, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Everything works ideologically on, on some level. So, and also there's an implication, I think, that in some critics in their tone that I can see, you know, I'm above the false consciousness here. I can read this, but normal audiences out there in the world can't. They're too dumb and they're going to be influenced by it, which I think is a really problematic place to you know, to come from when it comes to, to looking at movies and their effect. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think also I'd like to know what MI6's recruitment was like after the Bond movies. Did people, you know, did they have hundreds of people wanting to be spies? Like, I don't I don't know. Like, I mean, you know, but, but it feels like it's in the same wheelhouse. It presents this glamorous, I think, completely unrealistic presentation. But but it is, you know, there's a there is a kind of energy to it. But also this film is not really engaged. It's engaged with itself. It's engaged with the other film. It's not it's I I was watching it's, it's not it's not really about the enemy and it's not really about there's no geopolitics at all. No, it's just like the past and the past in in terms of how we've already seen it in the film, you know. Um or the, you know, which is literally replayed at length throughout, you know. So I I, I find that a little and also I think that yeah, I do think it's insulting to to assume that that especially now that where everyone's kind of got that kind of critical eye that there's that there's still a huge amount of people who are going to think that this is a realistic portrayal of of what it's like. Um, one note on that, which I thought was quite interesting, I, I the guy who played Payback, I think his name's Jay Ellis, um, uh, is an actor I really like, and I was like, you know, I I watched it, I was like, oh, where do I recognise him from? And then it was uh, Insecure, <laughs> the TV show, which I which I like. Um, he plays uh, Issa Rae's uh, boyfriend in that, and I just had to do a quick Google afterwards. And it was his his he's from an Air Force family. Like his his dad was a pilot, which I thought was quite interesting. I, I'm not saying it necessarily added much, but that was a nice you know. I, thought, I like that touch. You know, I think I think some of what makes the film so memorable for people is in its kind of you know the homoerotic subtext and the kind of the masculinity portrayal. You know, that's 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 very much at the at the core very close to the surface you know if not the surface of the first one and that that felt consciously addressed but it, I, I, I was thinking back on it it felt consciously addressed because I guess the Navy's changed and movies have changed you know like that it is going to be a different makeup of people who do this job now I think you know not to a huge degree and I think the film it wasn't like I was it didn't feel unrealistic that there would be a couple of black pilots and a female pilot you know like it, it didn't feel like it felt like a natural progression from from the last one but it obviously it's going to under it's going to undermine those things. So it's interesting that the criticisms are about what the film is doing that's different. Like like they people just want a, an exact rehash of all the things that the first film gave them, and when and it's doing that in some ways, and in some ways it's not. It, it's, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not doing it on. It's not doing it in a deliberative sense at all. Like there's no sort of. There's no call out, say, for example, that there is a woman pilot, or you know, that there there, I mean, there was black pilot in the in the original, but. You know, there's no sense we've moved on kind of in terms of political identities in this movie. I mean, for, if anything, you know, it's, it's you know, Cruz is still Cruz. And and like, yeah, people said, oh, it's in- interesting that, you know, he's he's got this age-appropriate connection with Jennifer Connelly, who, you know, <laughs> y- 
you're, you're talking about two of the most beautiful, most recognized film stars in the world who in their 50s are still better looking than 99% of the world's population, you know, and <laughs> so there, there is no, there is no sort of inclusivity in that. <laughs> for anyone never no matter what identity you come from these are these are uh, incredibly one-off people you know in that in that sense in that sense of you know the the, the sort of conventional beauty that, that is then glorified by cinema and that and and therefore you could just kind of say you could kind of say well yeah it doesn't do that it doesn't move forward in that but it doesn't move forward it doesn't move forward at all in any way it just redevelops the exact same hits and, and like you know the one thing that maybe story-wise that it you know keeps the interest alive is this sort of relationship with goose's son but even that's a sort of kind of a one-note thing before you get to the action sequences you know what i mean it's like oh right okay here we are you know where we're in the in these super we're coming up against these fifth generation fighters whatever the hell that means that you know and then gets the 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 f-14 out at the very end for the final hit which is just hilarious you know yeah which was that was you know again like i was that's that's a fun touch i think it is interesting that yeah it's so backward looking but you could you just i just felt cruz's hands all over it you know because the whole film it's like you don't you don't trust this kid you don't think he's ready and then like there's one bit where the kid does has any agency and then cruz just wrestles it back and it's like well i'm i'm gonna save us now yeah, yeah. you know and it's like cruz doesn't trust anyone else like it's like which i think i think that's really interesting but i mean it helps that i, I love watching him and I think he's brilliant in, in that in that space. But it is increasingly interesting. And they had a Mission Impossible trailer as well. So it was like... Yeah, yeah. Oh, the Mission Impossible trailer is just out of this world. Can't wait. You know, you don't have to wait too long for your next cruise <laughs> hit, which is great. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's funny, isn't it? Just to, just, just to sort of finish off that it's like you said about the level of filmmaking... I don't know whether craft is, is the right word. I mean, I use the word upholstery in my newsletter. It's just kind of like... Nothing this slight has the right to be made this well. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's movies that have got so much potential to be great that just don't have this level of, you know, money being, that you can see on screen has been has been spent to make this look as good as it does, you know? Yeah. What was I listening? I was listening to one of um, the writers on film episodes the other day and they were talking about this idea of like, I can't remember what it was. I'm sort of drawing a blank, but it was essentially about this idea of stunts, you know, and this kind of action work and how when you virtually produce everything, you lose, you do lose that craft set. You know, you lose that. Um, oh, it was about, um, it was Carl Buchanan talking about Mad Max Fury Road and saying that only George Miller really could have made that movie because he'd made those other movies, you know, because filmmakers coming through now don't, they don't make movies like Mad Max or The Road Warrior anymore. So when you come to to, to put something on this scale, the, like Top Gun Maverick, is the scale of those sequences is the biggest scale. You, you know, there's not many people who've actually got the skill, but skills to actually pull that off because so much now is is virtual production, green screen. It's it's not out in the wild. It's not actually doing this stuff in the in in these ways, and that very much feels like a dying art. You know, and for someone, I guess people like us. Like, people say is that enough and it's like well it kind of is because it's it's so rare that you see that stuff at that scale and it's a shame that it's in service of a slight film like this but separate from that it's it is incredible filmmaking you know and it's just it's thrilling to see and it catches you up you know i felt tense in the seat even though i know in every non-action scene exactly where it's going and what's going to happen when they actually put it together i don't know like that and that that's 
that's amazing i think that that it can still do that almost in spite of everything else around it <laughs> yeah yeah for sure okay i think we've uh, we've done enough on on top gun now um should we talk about hustle neil because this is one that you recommended that we we both watched and rightly because you know it does sort of chime with uh, one of my interests in terms of sports movies and i know you're interested in that too so yeah do you want to just sort of give us a pressy quick pressy of hustle so yeah um yeah i thought it'd be good with our with our kind of our sports movie past and, and your interest in it um to to watch it it's a brand new netflix production with adam sandler and um a variety of kind of real basketball players and it's he plays a um he plays a talent scout long-time talent scout trying to get into coaching with a kind of checkered past um who's sent out to find the next big thing and he ends up yeah finding this very sort of classically other side of the tracks you know uh, unstable unhinged kind of but mercurial talent um in spain uh, a player by the name of Bo cruz but that's not his not his real name he's an actual sort of nba player and yeah sort of tries to tries to get him drafted you know, so it's in that sweet spot that a lot of basketball movies are, which is college, sort of post-college or in you know, a sort of pre-MBA, like trying to get into the NBA, which are where a lot of basketball movies kind of naturally sit. Um, so, yeah, I thought it would be a good one to check out because I'm a big Adam Sandler fan, particularly when he's not. Well, I like him when in, in a good comedy, but I also like him as a I like him as an actor. Um, so, yeah, basketball, Adam Sandler. I was interested and you, you said, oh, I've seen it and I've got stuff to say. So um, what stuff have you got to say? So, yeah, I mean, look, while this was on, I thoroughly enjoyed it, right? I, and I was just kind of like, but I, I enjoyed it in a kind of really one-dimensional way. Like it was hitting the sports movie and particularly the basketball sports movie tropes but really well on the nose, do you know what I mean? And like, to be honest, I think Sandler holds it together and we'll come back to that in a second. But it's so obvious when you just take one step back what the production meetings were to get this made, you know, in Netflix. And I think what's really interesting is coming off the, our Top Gun conversation, that sense of why are things getting made? Who is the audience? Where are they placed? What that process is. You can almost sort of envisage that in every element of, of what you see in this movie. You know, like you say, clearly at some point they've gone to the NBA and say, look, we want to make this movie and we, but we want the participation of all of the NBA stars so so we can sell it to the NBA audience. That's who this is for. You know, I don't follow NBA basketball, so I don't know a lot of these players. I mean, like 90, 99% of them I don't know. But, you know, at the end credits, they make this massive, there's a massively long end credit sequence where it's just every name is as himself, as himself, as himself. It's not making any bones about the fact, if you like the NBA you're going to see all your favourites in this in this movie with Adam Sandler as this sort of unhinged uh, agent. So every, every character is kind of not a stereotype, but they're definitely a cipher. And it's that, that whole finding, you know, the Discover the Prodigy basketball films. There's loads of them out there. Or Discover, it doesn't even need to be basketball, Discover the Sports Star, you know, to come and save your team or, or what have you. You know, it hits all of those buttons in that, in, in that sense. And and so therefore I, I enjoyed the you know the setbacks the tra- I mean the, talk about sports movies there's a training sequence in this in this film that's about four times as long as anything in Rocky 
And it just goes on and on and on. And even at that point, I was like, okay, I get it. He's training hard. And then there was this whole, the, the whole story of, you know, he's he's kind he's kind of psychologically flawed. He can't deal with the the trash talk that the these other NBA players come come in with. So he's got to kind of like mentally deal with that. And then you get the Adam Sandler story of. You know, he's he wants to be a coach, but then he was denied that opportunity at the last minute. And so he goes out on a limb for this player who he trusts, and that goes against what his family wants. So there's you know, it's playing all of the all of these kind of really recognizable narrative hits. So I enjoyed it because of all of that, and it's done well. All of those on the nose things are done well. But then I, I just got to thinking, where does where does the sports movie go now in this era where you've got Friday Night Lights, and you've got Last Chance You. So you've got, you know, a highly developed television series that can take you through all of the arcs of all the individual players. And then you've got Last Chance You, which is real-life college players who are desperate to get into professional leagues, and most of them won't make it. So there's that that sort of bittersweet, yeah, but you're n- none of you are going to make it kind of, oh, you know, where are you all going? So... I was just thinking, where does where does the sports movie in this vein go? Because it's not doing anything new at all. A little bit like you know we've talked about in terms of in terms of Top Gun. But Sandler's great. San- Sandler holds holds it together. It's trading on his un- uncut gems role, I think, which is a much more sophisticated sports movie in many in many ways. And you know, it's it's not as good as say High Flying Birds. That's much more sophisticated. But again, it's doing that, which is doing something slightly different. Different. I mean, the one movie it did remind me of was a film called Blue Chips from the nineteen nineties with Nick Nolte as the as the manager and Shaquille O'Neal as the prodigy. It's it's very similar to that, and I think that's probably a a, a better movie. But so that's that's my four pence. What did you make of it, Neil? Yeah, Blue Chips. I thought of that as well. That it's a, that's a William Friedkin movie, isn't it? I, I really like that film. I think, yeah pretty much the same I, lo- I loved it in the moment and it was like the music started and adam sandler was kind of traipsing around hotel rooms looking at basketball players and i was like ah oh, it it it's designed for me you know like I, but i think i think that is the point it is it is manufactured to to do things you know and i think part of it is algorithmic i think it is manufactured to remind you or to to end and then underneath blue chips comes up and he got game comes up. I mean, he got game. I think is 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 my favorite Spike Lee. I think it's in a much much better movie. But but they it, they're in the vein, and it, it moves you. And the, and both of those films are films where, like this one, I thought the the performance of the basketball player and the as you know the the actor who the, the basketball player who played the character. I thought well, that was a good performance. You know, to get that kind of really good, oh, that's sol- the one thing I didn't buy. I really well, I thought that's it, the one thing I, I was going to yeah, say. Yeah. Well, I thought it was solid. You know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just didn't find him charismatic at all. Yeah. I thought that he 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 wasn't given a lot to do like acting wise. I mean training, yes, and basketball playing, but if you noticed in the early part of the movie, they didn't give him a lot of kind of oh, words no. to say. His yeah. mother said stuff and you know what I mean? And it was like clearly his acting's not great, so we're going to manage yeah, yeah. that. I, that's what I thought anyway. No, I agree, but I think that I think you could feel that, but I certainly didn't I you know, it didn't when he when he did say stuff, it didn't like throw me out um, and I think that's I mean it's hard when you got Ray Allen in he got game because that's a great performance I mean that that, that is a, a really really good performance um, but yeah it, it felt like it was kind of doing a lot of that and it was it's produced by LeBron James as well which we should say yeah yeah you know um, yeah, yeah. and I think that part of that question of what's where does it go and what's it for is in 
is in that training sequence. You know, it feels like it's like it's telling people almost in a Top Gun way, this is what it takes. Like you can be, you can be a mercurial talent and you can have, all, but you've got to put the work in and this is what the work looks like. And you're just like, yeah, we get that in a movie sense, but that you certainly can feel, I mean, that's the thing is like in the moment it's fine and enjoyable, but the, I certainly felt there, actually, you know, I can, I can see the decisions. I can feel the meetings and it's only really Sandler being he just he just goes all in as a performance mm. you know so yeah yeah, which, yeah. and it, that reminded me again of nolte and blue chips you know nolte and blue chips is wildly over overcompensating for what's going on around him with this performance um but again actors that you like and that are interesting and are actually kind of committed to they they, they carry it through and yeah i liked um i liked how pantomime villain ben foster was i haven't seen him do that in a while you know, like prop, even yeah, with the, the shaved head, like you know, yeah, like yeah, a yeah, like yeah, a proper yeah. Bond villain as the, the the kid of the boss, and yeah, yeah, just yeah, just a lot of fun while while it was on, really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it, funny because uh, the, the straight afterwards, I watched um, the Way Back, which is this Ben Affleck basketball film on Amazon Prime. So it's clear, but interestingly, it, it, I think that that film was going for much more of a sort of art house indie vibe. Where I mean, Affleck's just playing now. What is his stock character? This sort of middle-aged, regretful alcoholic, and it was really that was really kind of mawkish. And the and the the development of the team, you know, he's got this crap team that he's got to de- develop, but really that's a way to manage his alcoholism because his kid had died and stuff. But it was really not a great movie. It was sort of quite self-regarding and mawkish, in, like I say, for all its kind of you know machined algorithmic properties you know what i mean uh, i'd much rather watch hustle again that's for sure because it's sandler i think it comes down to it like i just I, you know when he's on form i think he's very watchable yeah that's good i was i had the way, the way back on my list but I, I i wondered if it was going to be a bit a bit too much like that all right so there we so, are yeah so the last film we're going to talk about is called lingui the sacred bonds which is a film that was on movie and it's by a chadian filmmaker um very prolific well-renowned filmmaker of the last sort of 25, 30 years, Mohammad Selah Haroun. And I have to confess, I don't think I've seen much of his work previously. I may have seen one of his earlier movies, uh, Abuna, I think, but perhaps I, I've seen at some point. But interestingly, this did make me want to go back and sort of say, oh, this is a filmmaker I really need to sort of know. Because just in a story sense, it's... it's very much of the moment in terms of it's a uh, a female-centered movie in terms of being about a, a mother and, and her daughter who are, the, the the mother is trying to break the cycle of of kind of single single motherhood because her, do- her daughter comes to her and says she's pregnant and then this is within the context of Chad which is you know highly Muslim country so having an abortion is <laughs> frowned upon against the law very difficult you know all of those things kind of together but then there's this sort of layers of patriarchal theocracy for want of a better word that presents all of these kinds of obstacles to the need to have this abortion for this young girl but then also you know there's layers of different parts of society that are you know making making life difficult in all sorts of different kinds of ways not just this sort of dramatic moment and what comes out is this sort of underground community of women who all 
help each other out in various different kinds of ways because that's the only way that they can kind of survive because of this overt the sort of overt oppression of of this patriarchal society yeah it was a filmmaker that he's a filmmaker that i'm not aware of uh, or hadn't been uh, and I, i saw that this was a movie release that was sort of really well regarded so i thought and i thought it might be a nice thing to look at after hustle and top gun which are very yay america um so yeah and i I really liked it i thought it was i thought it was fantastic um and i (laughs) think i had that kind of natural apprehension going in knowing it was you know it's been sort of referenced as an abortion drama so you're kind of girding yourself for that you know particularly after something like never really sometimes always or happening the the audrey devon which i haven't seen yet you know that there's a it's a good time for really kind of serious interesting films about this subject so I was kind of like prepared for that but it kind of took me by surprise in how gentle it was in terms of the filmmaking and the relationships and that it 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 didn't take the easy route of you know violence in a kind of traditional physical sense you know that the the violence is that the the women put up with like are, are like you say they're kind of structural patriarchal theological you know they're they're inescapable in many ways and they're kind of ever present so they have a kind of a weight of oppression but they're not you know they're not easily wielded in terms of like the, the what what you might expect to be the kind of the go-to sequences and i think that's true of also never really sometimes always which which does something really interesting in that space as well it's it feels like there's a move away from exploitation of this as a into a real investigation of what does what does it mean for these characters to 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 have this event um and have to kind of deal with it it reminded me of um uh mandabi the um the african film which i watched which is also on movie recently in terms of yeah just existing in existing in a space where there's a clash of you know historical legacies from you know colonialism plus you know different religions and and what is left is a mess of a mess of ideologies in terms of like the how you navigate and 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 what systems are in place you know in terms of healthcare or you know um and that 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 felt really interesting in terms of like just the sheer bureaucratic and practical nightmare of 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 having to look after yourself um that, that, that can take place which i thought was really interesting handled and then it reminded me of chinwara chibe's novel um uh, no longer at ease as well an african writer that i really like you know in terms of yeah just just that that kind of the mix of the the historical and the the legacies of of uh, of a place and and emergent and kind of dominant ways of of having to live i thought were really kind of nicely handled yeah and and, and it does that thing where again it it does require a kind of curiosity about the context because it doesn't give it to you in a kind of explicit sense and there's just some i mean again this is a a great filmmaker i think just simply in terms of aesthetics it's it's somebody who knows where to put the camera without a shadow of a doubt it's beautifully lit it's beautifully shot and that gives it a kind of what's the word i'm looking for it gives it it gives it a kind of significance and that i know that, that that's kind of an abstract word but it's it's it makes you feel like there that there's important things being said here but they're not being you're not being told you know oh the west is doing all of this i mean like say for example one just just one small thematic element that runs through the movies is that the the, the lead character and it, the movie starts like this you see her pulling out the wire out of tires 
and then the crafting them into these baskets that then she sells or, you know, tries to sell out, you know, on the street. Every so often you see her going back, either, you know, rolling tires or buying these tires or fashioning the tools to get the wire out and then weaving them together. And there's just this, this sort of inclination or this, the, the, you get this inkling that this is this is a sort of symbolic act as much as anything else. Yeah, it's a pragmatic act. She's making money out of it. But it's almost kind of like we are surviving on the on the dregs of a larger capitalist colonialist project that's been going on for years but it never never says that it's just like this is the reality of how i'm surviving like pulling out of this pulling out of uh, of an industry the, the 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 scraps that are left over do you know to make to make a little bit of money to to survive and it's just yeah it's really smart in in that way and then you know even like the with the the, the Muslim imam sort of turning up every so often to say, why aren't you at the mosque? And it's kind of like the influence of of religion and the, the, the sort of status of the imam being able to come into somebody's home and sort of say, come to the mosque. And even when, when she's at the mosque, she's not allowed to be in the same room as everyone else because she's a woman. And it's just kind of like, you know, you get, you get this moment where there's a crisis of faith and it's like, yeah, it's about time you had a crisis of faith. But it's, it's very difficult to have that in a way that's resistant because you're so, she is so weighed down as, it, as are all the women. And hence this sort of phrase of lingui, which, which means that these sacred bonds that are underneath that these women have together in order to be able to live. And it's just amazing when you think about what's going on now in, in the US in terms of the laws that are being enacted, that are in some ways going back to this level of patriarchal structuring and, and domination over women's rights to have autonomy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, well put. Yeah, and I, the, the, I thought the motif of the tyres was a, a, a brilliant way, like you say, of kind of contextualising that. And also showing the women or the black women at the bottom of the the hierarchical order in a really like they're, they're literally at the you know the, the, the close-ups of the hands working it you know and then like you say all these the layerings that that are above these women you know in terms of like how their lives are ordered and 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 managed i think was was really 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 definitely handled and it did look beautiful i mean it was just the colors are astonishing the the compositions are astonishing and just yeah the the pacing you know the 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 confidence of of taking you know an audience through a story which yeah i just loved how it opened on the mother and then it's kind of also the daughter's story and how she becomes a character in her own right is just so well well handled yeah and then like you say that, that how they you know that that kind of moment where we we are introduced to the idea of the sacred bonds is through the the mother's sister and that's a really lovely, difficult sequence. And then the film shifts elsewhere. Like it kind of, it, it can move into these other spaces really well. And that touches on, um, you know, and that scene is amazing. You know, where it, we don't see that, but 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 around that event is, is 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 amazing. And again, just the the kind of the naturalism of the women. I guess I would assume largely non-professional um, inhabiting those roles that they live in a really, really beautiful way cinematically i thought was i thought was fab yeah yeah and it made me want to really want to check out some more of, of, of that filmmaker's work yeah and, and and also sort of like think about you know because we do it with iranian cinema and we do it with different cinemas that have gotten international recognition more than say sort of chad chad cinema as it were but that idea of you know there is a cinema because i'm reading this movie piece 
by Wilfred Okiche, which gives a little bit of context to the filmmaker and to the film itself. And that idea of here is a specific, Chad is a specific country, obviously, in Africa, but has specific kind of political issues and has a polit- a specific kind of cinematic past, which you're kind of like, well, yeah, why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it? But, you know, it's not something that, that we in the West would pay attention to or, or know about. You know, a few people might, but on a general sense, we're too busy with Top Gun, you know what I mean? So it's it's great to sort of have have a, a, a space to sort of look look at that, you know, in a film to, that allows you an onboarding point to be able to say, oh, here's a good film. Here's a film that is clearly relevant, allows you an access point into a filmmaker from a region. And then you can think, oh, okay, so I've got some context to go and watch you know more of more of this guy's films or more c- cinema that that is is based in chat you know yeah for sure and i think that's a, that sort of brings us back to where we were earlier on wasn't it which is i saw it as a kind of gateway for curiosity you know like oh this i'm interested in this filmmaker and this place and i want to see more rather than taking it as oh i've i've done chad now <laughs> should have been or like i've seen this <laughs> and i kind of you know which i think yeah. is 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 a you know like because there's so much stuff, people are like, well, I'll, I'll just go through that. But yeah, I'm ho- I'm, and I'm hopeful that there's stuff to see rather than the, the the problem is a lot of the stuff that's available is only the stuff that's managed to get through into festivals. But hopefully, thanks to Mubi and others, that there's 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 more to see. Yeah, yeah, and there's more stuff on on Mubi as well. So that there is actually a series called Tales from the Fatherland, which focuses on uh, Saleh Haroun's films. So uh, yeah, we'll, def- we'll put a link up there and definitely check that out. Um, so yeah that will do it i think for our penultimate episode um i'm off to bucharest next week for a conference so i might be actually firing a few kind of audio missives from from there which i'm thinking are going to go up on the uh the the patreon site because they're just going to be small um, snippets but i don't think i'm going to put them behind the you know it's not just for patreon so you can you can listen to those even if you're not but we, yeah, if you want to support us on Patreon, you'll get our monthly newsletter and all our other bonus uh, content. So thank you to our supporters for continuing to uh, to yeah support us in that way. We appreciate it. Um, but yeah, also any likes or retweets or comments on social media, you know, we really appreciate those. Again, you know, it's the way that small independent podcasts do get a voice in this increasingly corporate landscape. Neil, great to talk to you, of course. You too. Yeah, really lovely to touch base. I'm looking forward to hearing what you get up to in Bucharest. Yeah, I've got to go make my film now for, for, for that. I'm trying to do a video <laughs> essay and get it finished um, by next week. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to be sitting in the garden trying to edit and, and what have you. Uh, but, yeah, great to talk to you. Um, and thank you for your continued listenership for our audience out there. Please come and see us on July the 5th at the Garden Cinema. The tickets are online. Just go on Google Garden Cinema, Covent Garden Cinematologists. And also on our social media, there's a link there for that event. So please come along. But until next time, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.